This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Welcome to everybody. Uh, in the relatively young world of podcasts, Guy Raz is, as the New York Times uh, called him, king. Uh, he is one of the most popular podcasters in history. His combined monthly audiences is 19.2 downloads, million downloads, not 19. Um, he is or was the host uh, and is the co-creator and editorial director of the TED Radio Hour, How I Built This and Wow in the World. And now he is the author of the book, How I Built This, The Unexpected Path to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs. In his podcast and now in his book, what seems like stories about business are really stories about being human. Guy is our stand-in, our archaeologist, and our guide. Guy, welcome. Thank you for having me, Roxanne. Uh, Great to be here. Um, so in my intro, I left out a couple of little key elements of your resume. Like you're a war reporter. You've been the NPR bureau chief in Berlin and London. You covered conflicts in Iraq, Kosovo, Palestine, Afghanistan. You got you won the Edward R. Morrow Award. So, what was your process or motivation of leaving such prominent, important, stable uh, positions to jump into the nascent world of podcasts? First with TED Radio Hour, and then starting How I Built This. Was it drip drip? Did you have an aha uh, an aha moment? How did that? How did that happen? It, it happened because of one very specific thing, Roxanne, and that was failure. It happened because of failure. Um, I ten years ago, I was um, I, I was in, living in a different world. I mean, I was a a, a reporter. I was a, a host of all things considered. And um, I had all these ambitions to be, uh, you know, to be a, a, a what I thought was uh, to have a prestigious role as a news anchor uh, at NPR. And what happened was I didn't, I wasn't selected. I wasn't chosen mm. to be the main anchor on all things considered 10 years ago. And, and that really was a roadblock. And that, and, and, and it, you know, it wasn't that, you know, I wasn't chosen and, 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 you know, the people who made that decision were evil. It was that yeah. they, had, they had other plans. And Are so still alive. Yeah. So, um, so, and the message that, that, that I, I, I got then was, look, this is as far as you are going to go. Mm. You know, you, you and, and, and part of it was I had been, um, I had been the host of the weekend version of all things considered. And I was really, um, that really was where I, I kind of um, supercharged my own entrepreneurial journey. You know, um, I was not yet a full entrepreneur, um, but I but I was functioning in that way, and I used that show as a sandbox to really try and recreate it. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I, I gained a reputation among, certainly among, among news managers as somebody who charted their own course. I'm being charitable, but probably from their perspective, somebody who wouldn't listen to them. Mm-hmm. And in an organization like NPR or any other media organization, you know, um, managers and, and producers and, and they want to have control. And my, my view is always that I, I, my voice, my voice, the voice you hear, it's not good enough to just read a script and to follow mm. somebody else's vision. Yeah. If, if that were the case, I'd have the voice of Bob Edwards, who had the, the most beautiful voice. You remember Bob Edwards. Yeah. I was not born with a great voice. Where, what I bring, what I brought to the air, what I brought to NPR News were my ideas. And that was my argument. So I never, you know, I never sort of functioned well in, in an environment where you sort of, there, there was this hierarchical structure and the, the show head made the decisions and the hosts kind of went along with it. And, and so for a variety of reasons, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be in the cards for me. That was about 10 years ago. And I had to make a decision. I had to decide what I was going to do with my life because at that point I was 35. Um, and I, you know, I, I was still in a position where I could start over. I'd already been at NPR for 12, 13 years by that point. Um, but I had an opportunity to collaborate with Ted, the people who do Ted talks mm-hmm. to start a show, a podcast. And, at the time, nobody was doing pod- – I mean, podcasts were like – it was like going into exile. Mm-hmm. And when I left NPR News 10 years ago to go start a podcast, some of my colleagues at NPR, distinguished colleagues, were like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Who listens to podcasts? Who listens to these what things? What are you thinking? What are you thinking? You have – you're the weekend host of all things considered. What are you thinking? And I thought the same thing. I, 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 I was pretty scared too at the time um, because I wasn't really sure what, where, what was going to happen. But you know what? I had, a, I, had a, 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 I had two little kids and I didn't care. I was just done with, with being part of the news. I was done with that, that part of my life. I had been in the news world for 15 years at that point. And I was really interested in creating something totally new and different. And, and I didn't care if any, nobody's going to listen to it. So mm-hmm. the TED Radio Hour was a chance for me to completely reinvent who I am and what I do again. And with that show, I decided I wanted it to be about what it means to be human. And that was really the core and the crux of that show. And we launched it. Um, I launched it, you know, we, we started working on it in 2012. And, um, and it, you know, was a slow burn, but podcasting took off. And, and I found myself in a position yeah. a few years in where, I was the guy doing it. I was, you know, I was there. I was one of these people doing it. And we had a big audience and we didn't, I never expected it. I mean, I thought it was going to be a year or two and I'd go find a job somewhere. I don't know, teaching or consulting or something. I didn't know. But, um, but that was really the, the, the sort of the core, the crux and how I kind of jumped from a completely different world that I inhabited to, to this one that I live in now where um, I make podcasts. I have a production company. I do another production company where I get I do kids content, and it's just cr- kind of crazy how how things work out that way. So in many ways, um, it, you know, this leads to a series of questions because y- your 
not only the host of how I built this, but you built this. You built how I built this. And it it so it prompts two questions I would have for you, Guy. One is, um, in reading about um, your background, your dad left a perfectly good, legit job at 41 to start a jewelry business, I think selling pearls. And so was that a motivator to you to become an entrepreneur or was that a deterrent? Um, it was a deterrent because I watched when I was a kid, I watched my dad really struggle to get his business off the ground at the beginning. I mean, I watched my mom and my dad cold call people, knock on doors. And then there were some, and then, you know, they, they eventually created a sustainable business, but there were some years where the economy was bad and people didn't buy pearls and my dad was stressed and, you know, he had employees. And um, so I didn't really want that life. I wanted a sort of a stable life. I wanted to to go work for somebody else and, and, um, and not worry about those kinds of things. Here, here's what I realized really. Um, and it probably took me about 15 years to realize this, which is that I didn't become an entrepreneur and I wasn't, and it wasn't that I had, um, been exposed to it early on. I mean, I was always, I was a kind of kid that had lemonade stands and I, I did all kinds of garage sales and sold candy at schools. And I was always, I always had jobs when I was 12 and 13, I started working, um, and in a gas station in the shopping malls, I always loved earning money for myself. You were wired for this. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. I, I think a lot of kids are like that. I, I think that what I realized throughout my, over, over the, over the course of reflecting on my career was that I was entrepreneurial. And actually I bet most of you watching this right now are entrepreneurial and, and behave and act in an entrepreneurial way every single day. It's, it really is a mindset. You know, we mm -hmm. fetishize this word entrepreneur, entrepreneur. This person's an entrepreneur. No, it's, it's, a, it's a way of behaving and acting. It's, it's solving problems. It's confronting an obstacle and trying to figure out how to get around it. It's, you know, it, it's making all sorts of decisions. It's dealing with crisis. It's, it's, it's being resilient when things are, are challenging and hard. And so over the course of my career, I came to recognize that I operated in that way. And also throughout my career, I was always trying to create new ideas and new, new things. I mean, whether I was a reporter overseas uh, or, or, you know, and, and the way I tried to report to when I became the host of all things considered to, you know, and, and creating all these new initiatives and then, and then creating shows. I, I love creating. I think a lot of people can identify with that. So, it, you know, initially I was deterred from this idea of being an entrepreneur because it was scary to me. But over time, I realized that actually most of us operate that way. And once you can recognize that and realize it and think of yourself that way, then it became clear to me that that's really what I wanted to do and to be. Yeah, so do you, you know, so you're at NPR, you're, it sounds like developing a little bit of a um, understanding whether appropriately or not, that maybe you were not meant for what you had imagined. So, you know, in your interviews and in your stories about entrepreneurs, there are moments of feeling very alone, down, 
and losing confidence. Was that a moment for you or did that just become a motivator for you to think in a different way and you didn't have to overcome a kind of disappointment in yourself? No, I mean, I have, I have been to the depths and the bottom of the barrel. I mean, I, I have had so many moments in my career that where I thought I was kind of finished and, 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 and so many obstacles in front of me. I mean, I, you know, when I came back, look, I, 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 went, I went overseas to be a foreign correspondent when I was 25. I had a very early meteoric rise, which I now ref, on reflection realize it's, it doesn't mean anything, right? But at the time, it was exciting. I was on this fast track. I, I covered the Iraq war, and then I was recruited by CNN to be their Jerusalem correspondent to cover Israel-Palestine, right? I was on television for two years, and it was very interesting, but it wasn't for me. Mm. Now imagine I go, I go back to the United States and I managed to get back into NPR. And, and imagine I'm back at NPR. I had been a foreign correspondent. I'd covered four wars. <laughs> I'd been to 30 countries at that point. Uh, I'd been CNN's correspondent. And I got back and the foreign editor at NPR at the time, there, there was a, there was a, a con right when I came back, there was a new conflict between Israel and Lebanon. And I had just returned right before that. And I was ready to go back and help NPR out. And, and, and the foreign editors had me write copy for the web. Whoa. And that was a hard moment for me, a very humbling yeah. moment because I had come back I was, you know, a CNN correspondent and here yeah. I am writing web copy and it was a really difficult moment because it, it made me realize that I had, I had to start from scratch and that was a very important experience for me. And I, and I did, I mean, I had to, I had to fight my way back in to find a job and eventually got one covering the Pentagon. And after doing that for a few years, I really wanted to be the host of a show. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't able to because at the time there were executives who made decisions about who was allowed to be a host of a show. And it was determined that I, w I didn't fit the personality mold. I didn't have the right personality. In fact, what I was told was that I sounded too much like a military correspondent and a war reporter and that I was too serious and I didn't have what a traditional NPR host had or needed mm. to have to be a host. So th those were some of the moments that really kind of put me in a spiral because when somebody you admire and respect tells right. you you suck, you believe them. And I believe that. And so there were many times in my career where I began to, to look outside of it, you know, to say, yeah, I wanted to be a journalist. I want to be a reporter, but maybe I'm just not good enough. Maybe these people are right. But each time that happened, what I realized in hindsight was it, it, it was a kick in the butt. It forced me mm -hmm. to, to, to try and take control over my career and, and, and stop handing it over to people to make those decisions for me, you know, whether it was news executives or managers or whatever, but to actually say, you know what, I'm going to try and decide what I'm going to do with my career. And so when, when that happened, when I couldn't be the host of a show, um, I began to explore other possibilities and I ended up finding this amazing uh, opportunity to study at Harvard for a year as a, as a journalism fellow. 
a program that they had there called the Neiman Fellowship. I applied for it and I got it. But I really applied for it because I thought that was my way out. That was my transition mm -hmm. year out of journalism. But that actually was my, my year where I recharged and was kind of reborn as a report, as a journalist, and, and then was really able to get to the next level. And just so that we put a period on that part of it, it was you took a class while you were a Neiman Fellow, and the, 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 the renowned case study approach that they use really ended up becoming, share with us how that became sort of the, the, the pivot to how I built this. Yeah, it was 2008, so it was a long time ago. But I took a class for the first time in my life at a business class at a business school. And I was just astonished that the way they, they learned, students learned about business through the case study method. I thought it was so fascinating because case studies are essentially stories. Mm -hmm. and, and it became so clear to me that what I loved to do as a reporter, whether it was covering Iraq or Afghanistan or Israel-Palestine, wasn't the day-to-day bang-bang news cycle. I was never interested in that. I saw a lot of I saw a lot of gunfire. I was around a lot of bombs and explosions. That was not what I lived for. There are some reporters who live for that. That was not me. I'm not a cowboy. I lived for the stories of people who lived in those places. That's mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. And that's what I was good at. I was not a good beat reporter and I was not a good investigative reporter. I was a really good storyteller. And when I saw that that was how they were teaching business school, it became very clear to me that they do that because we learn from narrative. We, we don't learn as well when we are exposed to abstract ideas. We learn from stories of other people. That's what we retain. And so once I started to really get into this class and these case studies, it really planted the seed in my mind that I could do this in the form in the format that that i already am doing it in which is mm -hmm. audio you know mm -hmm. that that maybe there's something there so i kind of planted it in the back of my head and it it sort of st stayed there gosh for you know another i guess um seven years mm -hmm. before i i came back to it you know guy in, in you're telling the story and in reading the book or listening to your show you're bringing up something that i think is very tricky for people over the arc of their career and that is when they're in a inflection point or a failure or a disappointment there's a lot of voices right there's your parents your spouse your friends your mentors and often people are discouraging of people making change they just generally are you know i don't know i don't think they mean badly but they do so as you've spoken to these entrepreneurs or you think about your own experience what is it that helps you choose the right people to listen to that jive with what's going on in the interior of your brain how do you even begin to think about that you know, um, it's very it, it it's very hard, right? Because you are going to be exposed to all kinds of advice and all kinds of people telling you what to do. Um, in in my experience, 
I have found that I, it, it becomes intuitive. There, there comes a point where you just kind of know that you have to do something. I mean, look, one of the examples I talk about in the book, which I think is so relevant to so many of us, is this concept of being, of being scared of doing something or, uh, or of do, you know, doing something that's dangerous or doing something that's scary. Right. So, so for example, let's say you've got a job right now that is stable, that pays you well, that um, you know you get decent benefits, but you don't love it. It's 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 not the thing that really gets you out of bed in the morning, and and you have some idea in your mind of something you want to do with your life, and you always have. Maybe it's an Etsy shop. Maybe it's I don't know uh, something that you want to create, right? Some idea you have, but you're too scared to leave that job because it's stable. Well, the question is, what's, 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 the, what's, the bigger, what's the bigger challenge here? Being scared to, to leave the job or, or to stay in the job and risk never trying this thing that you wanted to do. And, and the argument there is that that is actually the more dangerous decision because if you find yourself one day unable to try this thing that you want to try again, well, you know, you're, you're sort of out of options. It's scary to, to try something new. It's scary to, to leave a stable job. It's scary to, um, to take risks. But the question is, is it dangerous not to? And so that, I think, is something that I have reflected on a lot and, and something I talk about in the book. And, and, and a way to kind of think about how how to how to take risks, right? And, and, and when I say risks, by the way, it doesn't mean jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. It doesn't mean quitting that job and, and going to start your Etsy business selling you know, woven baskets. What it means is that you mitigate the risk. You start by being smart. You start by researching an industry or a product. He, he, the example I, I, I use in the book is Jim Cook, the founder of Boston Beer Company. He was a consultant at Boston Consulting Group. He big job. Two, big job. He had two kids. He was a Harvard graduate. He, he, you know, he had a mortgage, married. Age 30, you know, in his late 30s, he's thinking, I'm miserable. And, and he's, in, he's on, on the fast track to partnership. He's going to have those golden handcuffs. He's going to be a rich guy but he's miserable. And so he decides he wants to start a beer company. Okay, 1983. This is when American beer was a joke. It was the worst product on the planet. Nobody drank American beer, but he wanted to revive the culture of American beer making. Now he didn't leave Boston Consulting Group, but he started to sketch out his idea on nights and on weekends. And then he started to actually do real research by visiting bottling plants talking to anybody he could about the process, about the beer making process. Um, he would go to, um, to, to bars and see how people were, were, were drinking. He, he was basically acting as his own consultant, right? Doing his own case study and also saving his money. And when, when the time was right, it was six or seven months down the road, he already had dipped a toe into the water. He felt comfortable to jump into that pond with two feet and really pursue this idea. But I will add, 
but he knew that if some, for some reason it failed, it didn't work out. He didn't burn his bridges at Boston Consulting Group. He left on good terms. And, and so, you know, he, he, he left the door open to go back or maybe to go to another consulting job. So, mm-hmm. and by the way, this is a theme that, that I've encountered over and over again with entrepreneurs. You know, we think of them as these brash risk takers. It's just not true. Most of them mitigate their risks. Most of them have spent a lot of time thinking about how to methodically approach the problem that they're trying to solve with a product or an idea. And I think that's really instructive because sometimes many of us are intimidated. And I talk about this in the book. So many of us are intimidated to to try something new or to introduce a new idea into the world because of the risk involved. But the reality is that you can mitigate risk. And then you have to ask yourself, is it, is it dangerous or is it merely scary? Dangerous things don't do. Scary things we can all do. Yeah. And, you know, Guy, I love that message. And Jim's story prompts me to ask a, a slightly different question that has sort of a, a, a negative uh, element to it, but a positive uh, element as well. So Jim had a big safety net. A, he had a Harvard background. He had been at Bain. Likely if Bain wouldn't take him back uh, or, or BCG, Bain would take him. Somebody would take him, right? He was still Harvard. He still had that experience. In addition, he was the third generation brewer, yes, right? He there were brewers in his family. So one of the criticisms of um, of people who want to have startups is, well, they don't have access to family and friend money. They don't, they don't have the, you know, as the word is often used now, the privilege to be able to do this. But you talk about the other advantages that people underestimate are an element of privilege. And, and I'd love to have you talk about it. You know, you talk about personality, will, resilience, likability. So share with us the other qualities if you're not one of the people coming from privilege that could lead to your success. And, and let me preface this by saying, look, we, we, have a, we have a fundamental problem with systemic racism in the United States. And there's no question that white-skinned men are, are 100 meters ahead uh, at, from the starting line. Okay, they're starting 100 meters ahead. So if you're a white man like me and you're a real success, woohoo, congratulations, okay? Good it's, job. It's, good job, right? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to be so cynical, but, but really, it's, it's, not, it's not easy, but it's easier. No. But, 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 but here's the other side to it. It's, I think there's, it also, it's, it's not entirely constructive only to talk about the idea that some people can succeed and many people can't. Because while I believe it's true that, that there are some people who have unearned privileges and advantages, I really do believe that there are other advantages that people who may not have those financial or network advantages bring to the table. Personality, the ability to connect with people, the um, the ability to convince people of what you believe in your idea. I mean, I, I, one of one example I can give you is of Tope Awatana. 
came to the United States at the age of 15 his, with his mother. His father was murdered when he was a child. He grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. He was brought to the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia, and, and sent to a high school, an American high school, which he had never experienced in his life, um, racially segregated. He never experienced any of this in Lagos. Um, he goes to the University of Georgia to study computer science, okay? While he's at the University of Georgia, and by the way, has, is, is not, has no money, okay? He gets a job selling ADT alarm systems door to door. So he begins a two-year career as an undergraduate at the University of Georgia, going door to door in Athens, Georgia, trying to sell people alarm systems, okay? He gets, he, he, he knocks on 500 doors a week and 490 of those doors get slammed in his face. But through that time, he learns that if he can get one sale out of the 500, it's more money than he's ever seen in his life. And he, mm. he realizes that eventually there, there's a hit rate, that you have to experience a lot of no's and a lot of rejection until you hear a yes. So over that course of those two years selling ADT monitors, he builds a resilience to rejection. It's like, it's like rejection exposure therapy. It's like getting <laughs> inoculated a thousand times so that when he hears no later on, he's like, I've heard that before. He then graduates. He becomes a sales rep for a travel agency and then for a series of software companies where, again, he learns how to play the game. He learns how to hear no and how to keep coming back and becomes a very successful sales rep and saves all of his money because he really wants to start a business one day. And he goes through three phases of three different businesses. He starts a projector company. He then starts a barbecue company selling barbecues. Uh, those both fail. And he actually lost a lot of his own cash because he saved, you know, over, yeah. over the course of nine, 10 years, he saved a lot of money. He finally lands on an idea in his mind to create a, 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 an online scheduling platform that would make it easier for people to schedule meetings with each other rather than go back and forth and back and forth. But he does, he's not a developer. He has no connections to developers. What does he have? He has his 401k. He cashes it out. He pays the 10% penalty and he takes the $100,000 he has saved, okay, over that time period. And he finds a computer program factory, basically, you know, in Ukraine. He tells him his vision and they build it for him. That product is Calendly today. Mm. It is an $80 million company. He owns nearly 100% of it because he could not raise a penny for it. Right. He was a black man in Atlanta, Georgia, trying to convince people to believe in him, and he couldn't find any investors except one who gave him a tiny amount of money. That, I mean, the, the sheer force of will and also his experience as a salesman gave him the tools to create this business. Now, I'm not saying anybody can do that easily. No. What I'm saying is it's important to talk about these stories. And one of the reasons why I'm so focused in the book and on the show in, in, in talking about women and, and entrepreneurs of color isn't to be politically correct. That's not why I do it. I do it because I want women and people of color listening to the show to hear themselves in those stories and to say, yeah. Oh my God, I can do that too. And we do hear that. When, when we have an episode, to, like we just did you know, last week about a black entrepreneur, 
we hear from black entrepreneurs who say, I saw myself in that person and I, you know, I, I, I think I could do that too. That's, that, that's what fires me up. That's my, I have a huge platform. I reach three and a half million people a week on how I built this. If I can inspire, you know, more entrepreneurs to come online, more people to think entrepreneurially, that, that, that's incredible. Like, you know, there's no other yeah. job I'd want in the world. And, and I, I get that. Um, you know, what I wondered about when I think about all the buzz around startups and shows like how I built this, it makes me wonder, is that motivating people who can't do the lift to do it? Or is it prompting soul searching to really determine if they want to be entrepreneurial, but within an institutional environment rather than, you know, fly the airplane while they're building it? Yeah. Look, we are living in a very difficult time in human history and an even more difficult time in American history. Okay. I think I can look at all of you and I think you probably nod your heads and agree. Um, there are many reasons to be pessimistic right now. There are many reasons to be, to feel despair. What I'm trying to do with my show is to inspire people to think differently. Now it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you have to be optimistic all the time and walk out the door and, you know, dance. It's still a happy tune. Right. It, it, but it, what, it, what I'm trying to do is to say to everyone who listens, there is a world of possibility. And you don't have to build the next Airbnb or Uber mm -hmm. or Lyft to be a successful entrepreneur. In fact, to the contrary, you don't even have to build a business to be a successful entrepreneur. All you need to do is to have confidence in your own ability to introduce an idea into the world. And it, it might be something as simple as, a different way of operating. And Roxanne, it might be one of your employees saying, hey, Roxanne, you know, we really should have a whole section here on death metal and, and it should be painted in black and I want to run that section and I think everybody working that section should wear spiked collars. Mm -hmm. And you might say, that's a stupid idea, but I want that person to have the confidence to really think about that idea and to imagine a world where maybe that will improve someone's life. Maybe somebody yeah. will walk in your bookstore and say, oh my God, you're speaking to me. Not to see. <laughs> right. You know, I thought about that before I had uh, bookstores, I was a partner in a large accounting firm. And I, I remember really having to stop myself. You know, I'd been 20 years doing it. I thought, and you, you know, you'd get this young whippersnapper in there and they'd say, Rox, what about this? And I'd have to take, you know, 15 seconds when I'd want to say, that is the stupidest thing I ever heard. And instead pivot into, tell me what made you think of it and tell me how you think that would, because it's tempting, right? You're sort of yep. cynical at that point. You're yep. like, oh, please just go away. And we need to remember the next brilliant idea for your business is in potentially that person. That's right. And that person might say, hey, let's do this death metal section. Everybody wears black spikes collars. And you'll say, huh, it seems a little odd. Could we branch it out? And they'll say, well, you know, they, all, they also really like gaming. Huh, okay, well, tell me more. And then next thing you know, you've got a whole tribe of people coming to your store because of this wacky idea. 
You know, and this happens again and again in businesses, it happens in organizations, and it happens to individuals. And, and that's really the core and the crux of what I'm trying to do on the show, through the stories and the narratives of the people and, and in the book. You know, it's not just, here is how to architect a business. I mean, the, the book does, does that, it right? It does it, do that. It we does that. Here's to how to that. start a business from soup to nuts. Um, and here's all the things that you, you may want to think about. And here are the, and, but it's also narrative driven. It's every chapter, you don't have to read it in order. Every, every story is, it's every chapter is its own series of stories. It's designed to also ignite and fire up ideas in your own mind. And they don't have to be business ideas, that, but, but really just ideas that, that get your creativity going, you know, and, and really kind of, you know, maybe prompt you to follow your curiosity. That's, that's what I'm trying to do with the book, even though I package it in, in, in this careful wrapper of business. Yeah certainly helpful for people who are interested in business. It's really, I really am trying to be a source for inspiring people to think about disruptive ideas. And, and, it, and again, it doesn't have to be the next rocket to the moon. A disruptive idea can be a different way of working within your organization or your institution or your club. I mean, that that's what I'm trying to do. And you know, some of it is and you talk about this in the book, it's kind of accidental. I forget the name of the woman in Boston who had a food truck. And in order to keep people happy in line, she took sort of the pita bread and, and toasted it and handed it out. But I think, I think people here will know who I'm talking about. Stacy Madison and Stacy's Pita Chips. You know, it's like, okay, the, the side gig became the gig. Came the gig, right? I mean... <laughs> That's right. I mean, she was she had a, a pita sandwich roll up card in in in, uh, in in downtown Crossing, and uh, and you know to keep people waiting in line, they would hand out pita chips because they had stacks of pita at the end of the day, and 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 they would just toast them, toast them, and sprinkle parmesan on it. Well, people started coming to the sandwich cart and and asking for the pita chips, which we were she was giving out for free. Well, that eventually became a business that they sold to Pepsi for two hundred fifty million dollars ten years later. Yeah. And you know, the other part, um, but before I ask my closing couple of questions that we'd be remiss not to talk about that, the because we haven't gotten that to that in the conversation because people can read the book and um, learn that, but you do really address the issues of how do you bootstrap a company? How do you remain iterative? How do you think about financing your business with outside money or not? How do you create buzz? I mean, all of that is in the book. And if we had another hour, we would get to that. But I, I, wanna, I, I wanna wrap up the conversation with this element. You close many of your interviews um, and ask your guests to what extent do they feel luck played a part in their success uh, compared as opposed to uh, hard work or skill or intelligence? What is it about that question that um, you think reveals something about the person that might not have otherwise gotten revealed? You know, it's a question that is even though it sounds like a either or answer, it's not designed to elicit a binary 
it's not a binary question. It's not yeah. this or that or this or that. I ask that question at the end of often a three to four hour interview. What you hear on the show and what you read the book are just just a small portion of that yeah. interview that is not aired. Very few of us spend three or four hours recounting our life story in granular detail. You know, Socrates talked about the examined and unexamined life. Very few of us examine our lives in such detail. I've just walked a person through their entire journey in granular detail. And now, and by the way, they all know this question is coming. And many yeah. of them have an answer prepared for that question. And, and without fail, they always go off script. Because after three hours, when you ask somebody, what do you attribute your, luck, your, your success to? Hard work and skill, intelligence, luck, what, what is it? By the way, I'm not just asking them to give me an answer like uh, based on, you know. A, B, or C. Yeah. You, I mean, embedded in that question are other, are, is it privilege? Is it advantages you had? I mean, it's all yeah. embedded in that question. And I'm not asking it to be judgmental. There's no right or wrong answer. It's really designed to say, okay, we've just had this conversation now. I want you to reflect on what we talked about. So what do you think it is? Why do you think it's like that? It's a, it's a little bit like when you leave a museum and you walk into the atrium. And usually atriums are these soaring, beautiful places for meditation and reflection. And they're designed that way very, in a very, for a very specific reason. They're designed in this soaring way to give you headspace to think about what you just encountered. That's the role that that question plays. It's, it's basically saying, what do you think? Tell me. Oh, and, and very often their answers, the answers to that question are quite, it, it's, they're quite revealing because it's a moment that really enables that person to be very generous with their story mm -hmm. and, and, to, and to really think about, about why, why they succeeded. Mm -hmm. um, so as I say, there's no right or wrong answer, but it's, it really is just an opportunity to hear, to hear them reflect at, you know, at, at a moment when in some ways they're, they're vulnerable <laughs> because they, I've, I've worn them down. Yeah. Well, after three or four hours, you know, I think when you say that not many people get um, to say, say their story and their journey, not many people get someone who wants to listen to them for That's true. three or four That's hours. True. Um, you know, one other thing that I thought about is, have you thought about a show called How I Blew This? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm asked that a lot. No, because nobody would listen to that show. And, and it's not and what you want. It's not what I do. And, and, and my show is not success fetishization. Yeah. I focus on failure. But the people who come on the show were successful. And that actually is the carrot to bring you to the show, to listen to their failures. Because I want you to hear these people you admire and respect and know that like you and me, there was a time in their life where nobody would take their call. Because I remember that. I remember that time in my life. I remember trying to convince people that I could, I could do this that I, I can actually do this. Just give me a chance. I remember that. I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. You know, um, and, and that's, that's, you know, that's, that's key. That's crucial. So uh, uh, how I failed this, there are shows like that out there. It's not your not, gig. It's not my gig. Yeah. So guy, we've only spent 47 minutes together, not four hours, but of course I have to ask you that question. Yep. Um, what, role do you feel that luck 
played uh, in your success or intelligence or skill or privilege? Or how, how did you get here? What, were the, what was the ingredient for you? Look, um, I am simply, simply by the fact that I was born a white man in America, I, I, was, I, was, uh, I had this unearned advantage, right? My mom and dad came to this country in the early 70s and they made a life for themselves and their children. And, and that's um, you know, uh, something to be commended. When I came to NPR in the, in the 90s, my parents didn't even know what it was. I didn't grow up listening to NPR. I didn't grow up in a family of intellectuals. I grew up in a you know, family of, of, of working people, people who, who got jobs and, and, and wanted to make a living. Um, I have had the advantage to become educated in a way that my parents didn't because I had that choice because I didn't start all over again in the United States. Um, I had the, the, the great luck to, to go to a barbecue 20 years ago and see somebody there who wasn't supposed to be there, who I then met up four days later by chance, who is now my wife of, of 20 years, you know, 15 years who I've been with since, who is my most important, um, you know, sort of in intellectual outlet. I mean, she's, she's the person I, I run every idea by. I, I wouldn't be doing how I built this if it wasn't for her because my first stop is, is her and to consult with her. She's a lawyer. She's so smart. So uh, there, there's a lot of luck in, in, embedded in all of our experiences and, and chance mm -hmm. and, and opportunity. I think we all at some point will encounter luck or the opportunity to capture it. And um, and the question is, are we, you know, are you ready for it? And, yeah. and, you know, I, I, I don't think I'd be here right now if I didn't, if I didn't go to that barbecue 20 years ago. So mm -hmm. luck to me is a, is a big part of it. Yeah. Well, Guy, uh, we're at the limit of our conversation. I, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking uh, the time to uh, be with our guests here and, recorded for Just the Right Book. We've been talking with Guy Raz, uh, the author of How I Built This, and, you know, keep on inspiring everybody to do things they don't think they can do. We need more of that. We've been talking with Guy Raz, the author of How I Built This, The Unexpected Path to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.